do you reckon that you could get addicted to sneezing? There is a guy that calls up in this episode that can sneeze on demand and reckons that he is doing himself damage because ever since he was a kid, he has been obsessed with sneezing. We're also going to be talking about what happens when you try to abduct your eyes and about the viability of nuclear energy in the future. We love learning stuff. We love Dr. Carl. So let's begin. I'm Linda Mariano. Let's talk science. Dr. Carl's in here. Dr. Carl, how are you? I'm ever so peachy keen. This is just so fabulous to be with you again. It was lovely with Carla and she was fabulous, but you're fabulous too. We haven't spoken in so long. I was away for the last couple of science hours. That's right. I was running through Mongolia and Tibet and China and I've been running up and down Australia for National Science Week. I know. And then I was overseas gallivanting as well. I got jealous. It was was amazing. The thing about Science Week that got me was that there's so many young kids Mm. getting up with a question. So in the old days, you'd ask a bunch of kids a question and you'd get nothing. And then finally one hand might go up and say, please, sir, I've got a brown dog. And <laughs> and on this, this time there was uh, a young lady under the age of nine or something and said, excuse me, Dr. Carl, do you know, I should switch off my phone. <laughs> switch she said, off your phone? Yeah, yeah. She said, come on. Yeah, come on. I'm an amateur, man. I don't know how to work this radio stuff. And, and she said, excuse me, Dr. Excuse me, Dr. Carl, my invitation. Um, <laughs> I know we can't see black holes, but how can we measure the distance to them unless we're looking at the Doppler shift of the coming on the ra- X-radiation as it uh, comes off the accretion disk as it accelerates into the equator of the black hole? Jeez. That's a lot different from, please, sir, I have a black dog. It's just there's something going on. I have no idea why. Well, whatever it is, it's cool. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Kids love in science. If you're a kid and you love science, give us a call on one three hundred oh triple five three six. Let's jump into it this week to Alex in Canberra. Oh, Alex, Alex, are you there? Yeah. How are you? Hey, Alex. What's your question for Dr. Carl this morning? My question is about uh, DNA. Some friends and I were talking at the. Um, Grill Team No BS lunch the other day about what breakthroughs you think are likely to be seen in DNA over the next 10 years. Okay, so DNA was sort of worked out to be a double spiral about half a century ago and the great discovery was that in this ladder of life, which is like a, compare it to a normal ladder, which might have a dozen rungs and is three metres long, the DNA ladder of life, which is in each of our cells, except for the red blood cells, it's three metres long again, but it's got three billion rungs. And the great discovery was that any three of those rungs can potentially make an amino acid, which put a bunch of amino acids together, you get a protein, a bunch of proteins, you got a human being. And then around the year 2000, we said, hooray, we've finally uh, mapped the whole of the DNA. But because it was politicians, they were exaggerating a little bit. It took actually uh, six years later before we'd mapped all of the DNA. And to map the first DNA of a human being took 10 years and $3 billion. And it's kind of been used mapping sections of the DNA to work out your ancestry with moderate accuracy. And in forensics, always use it on TV and in agriculture and husbandry. And only this year did it actually become useful as a here and now tool in emergency medicine. Mm. And what we had was two groups of sick kids in England and in the United States. And they had just been born and they were desperately ill in the sense that they were going to die without medical intervention. They were in intensive care unit. You don't go there for a holiday, you know, talking $10,000 a day, right? They had pipes hanging out of them. And 
they were worried that they might have had some syndromes. Like you might have heard of Down syndrome, mm. which is not life-threatening, but there are some which are very life-threatening. And so they examined these kids and instead of three, uh, instead of um, uh, 10 years, they got the results back in one day. Right, and that's the whole DNA. And instead of three billion dollars, it was ten thousand dollars. And it was the first time they tried it. And with the kids, ten percent of them ended up getting a diagnosis, which changed their treatment, which led to a better outcome. So in the short term, we're getting to the stage where it'll be actually useful to you. So in maybe ten, fifteen years from now, you go to the GP, bang, uh, here's your DNA. Oh, look, there's a flu virus going around now, wow. and it seems that you are prone to this flu virus. Now, in the old days, it used to take six months to make a flu vaccine. But I'll just print you off one on my 3D printer and we'll inject it into you in five minutes' time. So we're heading that way and we're heading down a pathway where we'll also um, be able to stop the process of ageing in each of the cell systems in our body and then get to effective immortality where you'll, and here I am speculating, where you'll, uh, the treatments will come online in your 30s and 40s and you will then be brought back to a healthy 18 to 25-year-old body which you will then wear a healthy body for the next 5,000 years. So the offside of this is that you will be in the first generation to live forever, whereas I'll, I'll be in the last generation to die. I'm cool. Don't worry about it. And then um, the next day... I'd be happy to die as well. I don't want to live forever. I, what if you had a healthy body? Mm, healthy, sexy body? Maybe. Hel- maybe I okay, right. Yeah, yeah. And then the last stage is we give up the meat bag. I'm doing a story this week in my ABC Great Moments in Science section about all the flaws in the human body. And so Freeman Dyson says that the proper shape for a human being is, wait for it, a cloud of iron vapour weighing 50 kilograms, the diameter of a planet floating through space. It'd be still human because we could talk to it and you could still have sex because, as Frank Zappa said, your main sexual organ is your brain. What? Your main sexual organ is the brain. No, I'm just thinking of you wanting to be a plant, the size of a planet and having sex with your brain. Well, that's where you have sex with anyway. You don't have it with your body. Your body's just the wet, you know, the, the wet wear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. DNA. Is that the answer you wanted, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> we got there in the end. one 300 with your science questions. Weird and wonderful ones. Sienna from Canberra. Uh, what's your science question this morning, Sienna? So I was just wondering why when you itch mosquito bites, it feels so good momentarily, but when you leave them, you just want to scratch it. It's really annoying you. Um, We don't have a good answer, but we've got a moderate answer, which I'll give to you. So firstly, as a bit of background, we discovered the nerves for pain only in the last 30 years or so, 20 years or so. And we've actually found a few families in the world that don't feel pain. And one is a circus family in Pakistan and they normally die in their 20s with broken bones because they didn't really worry about it. And then with itch, we've only discovered the nerves for itch in the last 15 years and that's still a mystery. There are some sorts of itch that we can fix with histamine chemicals, antihistamines, but many others we can't fix. And the theory is the so-called, wait for it, gate theory. Like your brain can only accept an input from you know, your little finger uh, where the mozzie has bitten you, uh, only accept one input. And so it's accepted the itch. So if you give it a bit of pain, that overrides the itch. Now, that, that's sort of the best theory we have, but just a little bit of background for you to think about, Sienna. Pain and itch are like a seesaw. When one goes up, one goes down. And so there can be some cases where if uh, to relieve your pain in a hospital, they've given you a big fat dose of opiates, you can then end up itching like crazy. 
Ah, and is that also why, you know, sometimes if I go to mozzie bite and people do that technique where they put their... They, fingernail. Yeah, they put their fingernail in it so that it hurts a little bit and the, then it gets rid of the itch. Well, this is the gate theory, mm. G-A-T-E, which may or may not be correct. Okay. Is Wonder. that okay, Sienna? Thank you, Sienna. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you, Dr. Sienna. Well, Dr. JD from Caratha has also called up with a science question. What is it, Dr. JD? My question's been asked around the office this morning. We would like to know why can you teach a bird to talk, but you cannot teach a dog? Okay, back in the old days, we thought wrongly that animals had no, no smarts. An animal was wrongly thought, it was wrongly thought, was just a collection of reflexes. They had no intelligence, no emotions, all wrong. And so if it was hot, they'd get cool. If it was cool, they'd get hot. If they were hungry, they'd eat. And we've since found out that they can have language and they can have a large vocabulary. Now, as a medical doctor, my peak vocabulary was 50,000 words because there's all these crazy medical words you have to learn. But to get by in the English language, all you need is 800, which you'll, where can I find a restaurant? Can I have coffee? Um, not lovely to meet you, etc. 800 words. Coco, now, I can't remember whether she was a gorilla or an ape. Do you remember Coco, uh, Jaden? I remember. Jaden? Jaden? Do you remember Coco? Possibly. No. Well, anyway, so she is definitely female. She died recently. She had a vocabulary of over a thousand words. She had the hardware in her neck, in other words, uh, to, to be able to speak. Uh, so that's the larynx and the lungs. And she had the smarts in her brain, but she didn't have to, to, to formulate in her own mind words, but she didn't have, I think it's either the Broca or the Wernicke's area, which then does the fine motor control of the stuff in your neck. So she had a sort of sign language and she was quite clever and witty. Getting back to the birds, it turns out now, it's a real surprise, and, and the person to read up on this is Gazella G-I-S-E-L-A Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, and she's written some wonderful books on birds. I did a podcast with her, uh, uh, Shirtloads of Science is a podcast, and it turns out that birds, wait for it, are as smart as primates. They've got a tiny brain, but then they've got a tiny body, and their brain is really efficiently designed or evolved so that they've got twice the packing density that we have. And so birds can have very large vocabularies, and they can do tricks like if you get a crow and you you, you make the crow thirsty by not giving it water, and then you give it a bottle of water, and it, 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 down at the bottom is some water, but it can't get its beak all the way down, and you give it some stones it'll get the stones with its beak and drop it in the bottle of the water and lift the water level up. Wow. They're smart. And so they've got language. So dogs uh, maybe have a couple of hundred words. We're thinking that birds can have about a thousand words and the way they can formulate it, they're not using the same larynx stuff that we do. I don't know the pathway by which they do that, but they can actually, in the case of parrots, say words and know what they're saying. But they're not the smartest birds. The smartest birds are the crow family. Wow. So read the book by Gazella Kaplan and you'll learn so much more. We jump into science talk here this week once again with Dr. Carl. If you have a question, you should call 1300-0555-36. We're getting into it with Maddie from Perth. Maddie, what's your question? Hey, um, I'm learning about the cranial nerves at the moment and I was just wondering, I think it's the trigeminal one. Why aren't we able to abduct both eyes at the same time? 
Okay, so a bit of a background here. Uh, we've, t- we've got a dozen nerves that are called the cranial nerves they, because they come out of the brain. And most of them do their stuff in the brain, but some of them actually travel widely. And so nerve number 10, the vagus nerve, which means wanderer, actually wanders through the whole body. It kisses your neck and your heart and your gut and even goes down to your bottom as well. Now, the trigeminal... So I can tri- kiss my own butt? No, yes. Impossible. Um, I have seen gymnastic people, but the nerve, oh the nerve comes down there. Okay, right. Sorry, badly phrased on my part. So the trigeminal, um, that means that it has uh, three parts, tri, and it does sensation for the eye, for above your on your face, above your eyebrows, then another part does between your eyebrows and the corner of your mouth, and then the next part does from the corner of your mouth down. And there's a bunch of nerves involved, and the cranial nerves, I think three of them are involved with also moving your eyes. Now think about the eyeball. The eyeball is a globe about the size of a golf ball, and there's muscles above it and below it, so it can pull down and up, and muscles to the left and right, so it can go left and right and left, and then there's some muscles that come in on the side from the top and the bottom so it can go clockwise and anti-clockwise. So it's got a, it's fairly easy, it's fairly easy for you to cross your eyes in the sense that you put your finger about half a metre away, you bring your finger close to your eye and you're able to bring your two eyes to focus and suddenly your eyeballs, instead of running parallel looking at the world around you, are actually focused inwards. It is much harder to point them outwards and I've tried it and I can't do it because when I'm, I I don't know why, I think it's because, I'm speculating here, Maddie. I think it's when you've um, got one finger and you're following that finger towards your nose, your brain is concentrating on one thing and you can kind of do that. But when you move your fingers apart, suddenly your brain's got to concentrate on two things and that's so much harder than one and I think it's sort of the limit of what your brain can do. That's not a good answer and I'm throwing it open to the public. If somebody knows some... Electro visual electrophysiology or neuroanatomy of the eye, they can give us an answer. What do you reckon the answer is, Dr. Maddie? Um, I'm honestly not sure. My tutors didn't even know, but there's a new Snapchat filter that makes your eyes go either way, and I thought, can we do it? Or <laughs> Hang on, is this fake news, which, by the way, travels six times faster than real news? So you can send out a photograph, but it's not real. Okay, it's that's another story. It's definitely fake. Okay. one three hundred o triple five three six. Kyan from Preston in Victoria. You've caught up with a question. What is it, Dr. Kyan? Uh, hi. I was just wondering how non-Newtonian fluids worked. Okay, so think of going to the beach with the little kitties and you've got a bucket with a spade or just a bucket and you put some sand in that bucket and then some water and you can move your hand slowly through that bucket of sand and water all day. So it's a really sandy mix. You've got to work at it, but you can move it slowly. The moment you try to move fast, it freezes up on you. That's kind of a verb, well, that, that's one example, I think, of a non-Newtonian fluid. Um, another one is cornstarch, it's corn flour. So um, if you get regular flour and add water to it, nothing happens whether you move it fast or slow. And for our Sleek Geeks TV show with Ruben Meerman and Adam Spencer and Caroline Pegram, what we did was we got a whole tonne 
of flour and it was advertised as corn flour and we put it into a vat and they sent us the wrong stuff. They sent us wheat flour. So then we, at the last minute, got some corn flour. And so if you stand on this wet slushy mix, about a metre by a metre by a metre, of, cor- of wet corn flour, you will slowly sink to the bottom. But if you walk quickly across it, it's as solid as a rock. Now think about viscosity. Think about sh- layers of a liquid moving past each other. In normal Newtonian liquid, think about water in a river. Now you get a little uh, leaf and you throw it into the middle of the water and it just goes whoosh really fast. Mm. And you drop that leaf halfway out between the middle and the edge and it goes slower and you drop it at the edge and it's hardly moving at all. So there's all these layers of water, each of which is moving at say half a kilometre of an hour faster than the one next to it and they're all moving in parallel. In a non-Newtonian fluid that doesn't work. The viscosity is not proportional to the velocity. So the best way is to look up Wikipedia as a good start and then take it from there. Thank you, yeah. Dr. Kyan. Thank you, Dr. Kyan. Bye, Dr. Kyan. Bye. Bye. I love Dr. Kyan. Hey, Dr. Nick from Hornsby, what is your question this morning for Dr. Carl? Hey, doctors. Hey. Um, we have a colour bomb roof at work and in the morning the condensation doesn't sit on the screw lines. We're just wondering why that is. Hang on. So you've got a, a, a roof where the colour has been you know, bonded into the metal, which is some sort of iron, right? And is it a, a, a ripple roof or a flat one or a square section one? A rippled roof. Okay, so it's like a sine wave going up and down. And then you've got uh, that, that then is screwed to the roof by a bunch of long screws and you're saying... Along that line, is it is it just the screw heads themselves or is that that particular raised sine wave which doesn't get the condensation on it? So it's about 50 mil around the whole screw which is, is doesn't have condensation on it. Oh, and how far apart are the screws? Uh, Half a metre or something? Probably about 200 mil. Oh, so... Does that mean that entirely along that line, you know, the raised edge, and and by the way, when you screw the roof to the wooden battens underneath, you do it on the raised section because then the water will run away, whereas if you do it in the hollow, it'll tend to pool there and maybe leak through. Is it something to do... I, I don't know. I'm guessing that maybe there's some extra insulation associated with the wood immediately under the batten. Is that what you're, you guys are thinking? Yeah, well, they definitely, we put insulation under the roof, yeah. But yeah, it's just along the horizontal, there's just no, no actual water. But along the rest of the roof, there's, there's all condensation. So, yeah. I do not have an answer. What's the magic number they should ring in? One three hundred oh triple five three six. And if we have an answer or text line. Uh, yeah. Oh four three nine seven five seven triple five. And also uh, tweet an answer to me, which is at Dr Carl D O C T O R, the long version of Doctor Carl K A R L, just all together, six letters plus four. That's what we'll you get do. you an answer. Thank you, Doctor Anna from Sydney. Let's squeeze in your call. What is your question this morning for Doctor Carl? Ah, uh, hi, doctors. Yeah, when I go to sleep at night um, and my head's tucked under the covers um, in the journal, so it's all dark. So when I cough, I see a very bright um, flash like lightning. Um, Is that like some sort of phenomenon? Ah, so um, you have your whole head underneath the blankets? 
Yep. Except for your nose, you just got the, I, I used to do that when I was. I love doing yeah, that. I know, it's so cold. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and then, yeah, if I, and if I cough, I just see this like um, bright flash, like like sort of like lightning, even. Okay, this is called a phosphine. P H O S P H E N E. Look it up in Wikipedia. And what's happening is that by coughing, you are bending the molecules called. 11 cis retinal, you're bending them and they're giving off electricity. Normally what happens is that light comes into your eyeball, it lands on these molecules and these molecules are really just on the point. I think they either go from straight to bent or bent to straight. There's two of them. I think it starts off as 11 cis retinal and goes to 11 trans retinal and so normally they're, they're just on the point of bending and all you have to do is just give them the energy and a photon of light and they'll change shape and give off electricity and then you apply lots of electronic processing in your retina and your eye and you get vision. By coughing you put a pressure wave through your entire chest and up your neck and into your skull and then onto the back of your eyeball and this pressure wave then acts on the back of the eyeball and it's enough depending on where it lands because you know there'll be places where it lands and places that doesn't land because the whole thing's curved it is, is it enough to make these molecules change shape normally they change shape because light lands on them in this case they're changing shape because the shock wave is making them change shape and then you're getting a flash of light in your brain and this is entirely normal wow so okay, nothing to worry about at all. So <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, now, um, what I'll, is this lightning in my bed? And then, so, um, just as a little um, sort of um, advertisement for sustainability, um, in you have people from who come from Europe to Australia, and they say, "I've never been as cold in Europe." through deep sub-zero winters as I am in your house here in Pick the City in Australia. And our answer is wrongly every time. Oh, we don't need double glazing in Australia because or insulation because we have a moderate climate. No, we don't. It's, it gets hot and it gets cold. And they talk about the five-star rating. That's not five out of five. That's five out of ten. So you've got double glazing. I've got Dr. double glazing. Dr. has got double glazing. We're talking science with the one, the only, Dr. Carl this morning. So if you have a question, give us a call. one three hundred O triple five three six. Let's do it with Isaac from Wagga. What's your question, Dr. Isaac? Hey, Dr. Carl. Um, I've got a question in the midst of the energy crisis. What mm-hmm. do you think about the viability of nuclear energy in Australia? Um, nuclear energy is and has been remarkably safe and has had many tens and hundreds and thousands of times fewer deaths associated with it than coal when you measure it by the number of deaths or injuries per gigawatt hour of energy made. However, uh, I have a few problems with nuclear energy. One is that you waste about 95% of the energy and uh, that's not a big one. It's kind of bad, but that's not the main one. And the second one is uh, that they can go bang, but the number of deaths overall, when you average it out over the last half century, is much fewer than the deaths from coal. The third one for me is a big worry. You can use it 
once you got a nuclear power plant, to make nuclear weapons. And so that happened with Israel, with their peaceful nuclear reactor, and then South Africa, and India, and Pakistan, and North Korea, and just keep on going. And no, nuclear weapons are not something that we should have. There has been talk about thorium having certain advantages, and it, they were saying that it was very difficult to subvert the thorium cycle to make nuclear weapons. And the advantage of thorium reactors was that they couldn't go bang. And they also used 30% of the energy in the fuel, not 5%. But I just read an article last week in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists that they've now found that you get a radioactive element in a thorium cycle called proactinium, which can be easily turned into uranium. So the, for me, the main worry is that you can use them to make nuclear weapons. We haven't had any go off for a long time against people. Even one would be such a horrendous disaster. That's my main problem with it. And the thing is that we can do entirely running the whole world easily on renewables without having to go down mm. that pathway. All right. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you for your call, Dr. Isaac. Hey, uh, Emma in Melbourne, you have a science question this morning. What is it, Emma? Yes. Hey, guys. Hi, Dr. Um, my question is in regards to those relaxation pods where you can sit in them and the water level is, you know, up a bit and you slide down them for about an hour or so. Yep. And what I wanted to know is what do they do to our body and how does that affect us? Um, is your body up against the water or are you just sort of floating with a membrane between you and the water? You're floating. So they've got a bit of a shallow water and you lie down them and they close up and you're in them for about half an hour to an hour and people say that they have like a lot of, you know, spiritual experiences, relaxation, meditation. And I was just curious to know how does that water, how does that uh, affect us and our bodies? It's basically just taking you out of your normal world and to a different place where you've got nothing else to do but just... B. And so you, you might think, wow, I'm, I'm going to have a holiday at home and not do anything. And suddenly you think, oh, I should really mow the lawn. Look, there's a lot of dust on that picture rail. Whereas if you're, so that's why people actually go away from a holiday to leave their home. Although if they were able to ignore their house, they could have just as good a holiday at home. So the um, these water pods just do the, you're in a completely different environment. You've got nothing to, that you can do with your hands. Your phone's not here hey, I may as well just think. And if you had enough mental discipline, you'd save yourself the money. So if it's not too expensive and the water's clean, you don't get a fungal infection from it, sure, you know, uh, it's a bit expensive, but just have a bath and then just switch off all the lights and light a candle. So there's no science or like particular like chemical stuff? No, yeah. it's, it's more just an isolation. We tried that the other night, but then the candle had this amazing oscillation where it started making a noise. The wick instead of Wait, being... Wait, where, where were you? My wife and I in the bath. Oh, okay. Right? And, and instead of having a sort of like a tapered cylinder for a, a week it had something like a, a a shallow half u and it made this sort of fluttering noise and we thought there's a tap on no it was, it was the air blast so that destroyed the ability to so but then later we thought and we, we relaxed more but what a nice romantic it, it was a night that dr carl had one three hundred oh triple five three six let's chat science with tyson from adelaide hey dr tyson hey doctors how are you good what's your question um, so whenever I'm in the shower and it's obviously hot water running and I reach up if I've got like a cut on my hand and touch the shower head or the taps, I get like zapped. Mm -hmm. I'm just not sure what causes that. Okay, what's happening is that there's a bit of electricity, a bit of electrical potential. There's some volts floating on what should be an isolated earth line 
and it's probably not going to kill you. You normally you only feel it through. The reason you feel it through a cut is that your skin is a pretty good insulator, and here you're bypassing the skin and going straight into the wet, squishy sodium and potassium ions inside your body. Um, you should get a Sparky to look at it, and almost certainly it is not a problem. You can have a floating voltage of up to 80 volts, and there's bugger all current behind it, but there might be um, the situation that your earth is not connected to the ground. You have a thing called a main earth neutral. It's, it's a complicated thing. The sparkies are the specialists. I am not. Look, if you want some carpentry done, don't ask for a chef. So if you want some electricity done, don't ask me, but get a sparky to look at it. And almost certainly it's okay, but it might be bad. So okay. get a sparky to look at it. Okay. Thank um, you, sure. Tyson. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, we're chatting science with Dr. Carl this morning. If you've got a question, hit us up on 1300-0555-36. Let's head to Melbourne with Mariah. What's your question, Dr. Mariah? Hi, doctors. How are you going? Very well. Thank you, Dr. Mariah. That's good. I've got a question about psoriasis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of research that goes into the fact that many women during pregnancy who have had it post-pregnancy actually experience zero symptoms while they're pregnant Mm -hmm. and then after they're pregnant it's most likely to stay away but why do some women who have never experienced it before in their life only develop it during pregnancy i haven't been able to find any research on that ah i'm kind of doing a story on that on the bad design of the body and it goes like this psoriasis is an autoimmune disease where your body attacks yourself. So in general... Is this, I, this is a skin... A skin disorder? Yeah. Yep. And there's five different types of psoriasis, which makes it complicated, and it has a very strong genetic component and a strong environmental component, and that environment can be either the outside world or the changing environment inside your body especially when you're going pregnant, non-pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got about 3% of the population suffering psoriasis, 7% of the population, as an aside, suffer autoimmune diseases. Um, What happens during pregnancy is that the woman's immune system is reduced, so it will not attack the baby so much. So the baby is half the mother and half the father. And so to protect the baby from the mother's immune system, the mother's immune system is throttled down and psoriasis is an uh, is a autoimmune disease where it's acting too strongly. So throttling it down by being pregnant um, is good for psoriasis, but it can be bad in other conditions. When it changes post-pregnancy... Uh, so, so the, the bottom line is we don't fully understand the autoimmune system. At this stage, I'm going to start saying the standard, I don't know. It's real. And the way to find out would be to get a, refer, uh, a referral from your GP to a dermatologist who can then look at you. And almost certainly they won't um, do anything major, but it'll be noted and you'll have more knowledge and you'll be able to manage it better in the long term. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, Dr. Mariah. Thank you, Dr. Mariah. one 300 for your wonderful science questions. Luke from Perth, what's your one this morning? Hi, doctors. How are you? Pretty peachy keen, Dr. Luke. So I, I have a bit of a problem, Dr. Carl. I am addicted to sneezing and I can manually produce a sneeze either by pushing on the bridge of my nose or sticking foreign objects in my nose such as tissue. And I was just wondering, Dr. Carl, am I slowly killing myself by sneezing? 
not killing yourself, but every time you sneeze, you're putting a pressure pulse through uh, your trunk and your neck and your brain. And normally, sneezing is a good reflex. You see, you breathe. Linda's trying to. I'm trying pro- to push the. I'm trying to push the bridge of my nose to see if it, anything it, happens. Here's a technique, Linda. When yeah. did you? Do, when did you discover it? Uh, probably as a child, around ten or eleven, I reckon. Okay, <laughs> and then you just yeah. never. Are you? Were you known as like the sneezing kid at school or something? Oh no, it's a, it's a very private thing, Linda. It's only done in the confines well, of. Well, it's not private if you're on radio on. talking about it. But he's well, anonymous. Uh, yeah, completely anonymous. That's right, Dr. Carl. Now, Dr. Luke, do you also have the sneezing in sunlight syndrome, which affects uh, 3% of the population to a variable degree? I, yeah, yeah. if I stare at the sunlight, um, I can produce a sneeze, but I almost feel like I've dulled my sneeze reflex from so much sneezing. Okay, now, okay so firstly, sneezing is good because each minute you bring in five litres of air and then shove it out again and there's a bit of dust in it and you want to get rid of that dust over a period of time so sneezing is good. What you can do by having unwanted sneezing is just causing wear and tear on everything in your upper airways. I would tend not to do it. Uh, If there's anybody who's doing a sneezing study, please ring us because Luke is the sort of person you want. I would tend to back off from it purely because you don't know what would happen to your body after 50 years' worth. So early this morning, Carl, remember we had um, the guy call up that was talking about when he would get to work in the morning, he works on a construction Uh, site, there would be morning dew all over the site, but there wouldn't be morning dew on the screw lines on a a corrugated roof. Um, Mm. Dave from Canberra, you've called up with an answer for the question about Mm. dew and corrugated iron roofs. Um, What is it, Dave? G'day, doctors. How are you? Lay it on us, Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for ringing in. Um, so it's just a theory. I, I don't know it's an answer, but I, I, my theory is that underneath the head of each of the screws is a rubber grommet or a washer. And my theory is that through a capillary-type action, the water around that would be uh, attracted to the rubber, filling up the gaps, which is usually there to prevent uh, or create a watertight seal to prevent moisture from going through uh, the hole that's produced by the screw. And in doing so, around 50 mil around the, the, the head, it would thin the, the condensation or that liquid. So it would be the first area to dry as a result of breeze or anything. So the, the rest of the roof has a thicker layer of condensation, whereas around the roof that's been, uh, the roofing nail, it's been Thinned. Does that sound like a reasonable theory? It sounds entirely a reasonable hypothesis. And somebody's come up with another one. Uh, Ian Grellen says the roof screw is adding a long embedded extra insulator to the roof so it takes longer to heat up or cool down. This is not a trivial problem, Dr. Dave. We'll have to think more about this one. Wow, thank you. Oh, and I have an answer about the eyes from Tom, a medical student. About the what? Abducting eyes? So adduct. Adducting. Adduct is to um, bring them together and abduct, you know, like to abduct somebody in a kidnapping is to bring apart. And he says, and I have to read up on this, of course, the medial longitudinal fasciculus prevents simultaneous abduction of both eyes, of of course, by causing the contralateral eye to adduct when one is abducted. But in intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, this doesn't work, so one eye stays central. I'm going to have to read up on that and turn it into English. It'll take me about an Uh, hour. Ah, so essentially he is saying that you cannot... 
do it because you cannot separate your eyes. He says he's mentioning some big words here, and I'm going to have to understand it. Okay, Katie from Wangaratta, you have called up with a question this morning. What is it, Katie? Hi, um, I was just wondering. I have anosmia, which is no sense of smell, but I still get affected by like nail polish removers. Does it affect? Can you smell it or does it hurt your eyes? Like it burns. <laughs> burns your eyes or burns inside your nose? Yeah, inside my nose. But like with paint thinners, nothing happens. Ah, and have you always had no sense of smell or did you have an injury to the head where the cribriform plate got shifted? No, um, I was born with it. My um, couple of people in my family also have no sense oh. of smell. Yeah. Okay, so um, a common this happens commonly, not commonly, it does happen to surfers, and what happens is that the smell molecules land on an area the size of your fingernail called the olfactory epithelium, and then a million nerves go through a million holes in a bony plate called the cribriform plate, and if you get an injury to the side of the head, it can just shear them off and you've got no sense of smell. I don't know what's going on. Um, yeah, I think it's really weird. I think it's really weird, and what we need yeah. is an ENT person to ring in. So it's definitely not that your eyes are burning, and then you translate this into a, a uh, I'm getting a burning in my nose, because you do have uh, the tear ducts going down the back of the nose. It's not the eyes burning, is it? No, it's um, it's like, yeah, as soon as I start to use the nail polish remover and I breathe it in sort of thing, my throat and nose kind of burn together. Oh, so it could be a reaction of cells lining your airways that are sensing something nasty and they cause something to close down. This would be interesting to ask your GP and just get referred to an ENT at some ear, nose and throat specialist just so you know and it's on record. But I don't think it's life-threatening. But I don't know the answer. And if you find out, let me know, please. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Katie. Hey, Dr. James in Canberra, we'll squeeze in your question this morning. What is it for Dr. Carl? Um, So I saw in the news recently that... um, They've started to manage to kill senescent cells uh, in the lab you know, um, by targeting the mitochondria. I was wondering, Dr. Carl, if you um, would specifically take any uh, senescent cell anti-aging drug treatment if it kind of made, made, they made it work in the future. Um, number one, all drugs are poisons. What matters is the dose. Number two, never be the first to try a new medication and never be the last. <laughs> and there's a fascinating article in the New Scientist on this exact topic, which I was reading on the way down in the plane on the 14th of July, 2018, in the New Scientist, page nine, talking about these senescent cells and how you can get some of these cells. And in humans, they only start appearing in the human body around the age in your 60s. And then they, but they can be brought on earlier if you're obese or you have chronic disease or you punish your body, body a lot. And with mice, they got some healthy young mice and then got some older mice and got these cells and injected them into the younger mice. And almost um, within a few weeks, their speed and their endurance and their strength sunk to the level of a typical elderly mi- mouse dropping by, uh, twi- dropping by uh, 80 to 50%. So they found some drugs that can kind of work on them, maybe. And in that case, if something's kind of working, maybe I'd wait at least 10 years because the side effects might be terrible. So you would do it, but you just would not be the first. You wouldn't be the guinea pig. No, don't be the first, don't be the last. Okay. 
boy, I hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, please like it, subscribe it, and check out heaps of other episodes where you get to hang out with Dr. Carl even more.